So here we are, Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, he asked them again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, as we consider this difficult passage, we pray that you would cause us to hear what you truly desire for us to hear. Help us to consider the gravity of your word, the importance it is in our lives as disciples. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, these days, if you want to get yourself into political correctness trouble, you preach a message on hell. Um, If you really want to get yourself into trouble, well, then you preach a message on divorce and money. So last week, I taught on hell. This week, we are teaching on divorce and money. And to open our time with this difficult and delicate subject matter, I want to open up, I thought it would be prudent to tell you about a particular marriage. The particular marriage I want to tell you about, it was rocky, and sadly, it ended in divorce. I'm, I'm going to keep the names about this marriage anonymous. And the reason is, is because I think you may know them. You might know this couple. So I won't give you the names. But hear, hear how the tale of their marriage goes. This marriage began in pure bliss. Like many marriages, the honeymoon was amazing. It was wonderful. And like many marriages, right after the honeymoon, things got rocky very quick. There were cracks in the foundation of this marriage right off the bat. Mistrust began to form. There were periods of separation, followed by periods of rejoining back together, followed by more periods of separation. People on the outside looking in thinking, is this marriage going to work? And as far as we can tell, this couple, at least in the case of this couple, the husband had done nothing wrong. The husband was a stellar example of loving your wife. But the woman, at least in this case, she was a train wreck. She was awful. She had been half-hearted in the marriage. She had been horribly unfaithful. She had been vile. In fact, At one point, friends, it got so bad that 
The husband finally said, because of your unfaithfulness, I am issuing you a decree of divorce. But even then, even then, the husband held out hope, begging her to return. One day, the husband, he, he, was, uh, he was out of town and he decides that he's going to show up in the town where this woman was living in. Things had gotten so bad that the woman was about to do something very foolish that would ultimately end her life. And this ex-husband, he shows up and he, he had already pre-planned. He thought to himself, if it comes down to it, if I have to, I will give up my life for this woman. If, if, if she's in the way and a bus is approaching, even though she's my ex-wife, I will push her out of the way and take the blow. And so the husband planned this. And in fact, as things turned about, this is exactly what happened. He ended up giving his life to save this woman. And in the middle of giving up his life, he actually gained his life. And he also rescued this woman from her adultery. The husband then gives her a new engagement ring in which he says, I have some important business I must attend to, but I will be coming back. And when I come back, we are going to have the wedding of all weddings. This woman was then for this wedding to be clothed in white, made holy and adorned for her husband, as if none of the adulteries in the past had ever happened. Friends, you and I have actually been invited to this wedding. But you and I are not invited to this wedding as wedding guests. Do you recognize this couple? Friends, if you don't understand this, Christians, you are the woman. You and I. Do you recognize this couple? The Bible speaks in terms of marriage being an illustration and a picture of the gospel. The gospel has an end goal in mind. It has a telos. It has a direction it's heading to. It's not just forgiveness of your sin, although that's extremely important. But the ultimate end goal of the gospel is the union of God and man forever, never to be separated. It is pictured by the lamb who is the groom to be wed to his bride, which encompasses all the people of faith who love God. And I open up with this picture this morning. Why? Because everything else I'm about to tell you in regards to marriage and divorce, it only follows out of this first. Why does God long for our marriages to be faithful, to be forever, and to be fruitful? Because they are an illustration of our marriage to him. So our time this morning, we're going to be looking at family matters. We're looking at uh, marriages and children and finances. Um, So to get at this, I have a threefold outline. The faithful marriage, childlike faith, and then treasuring the true treasure. So first, the faithful marriage. Now, I had thought if someone woke me up in the middle of the night and said, Thomas, when it comes to this whole thing of marriage and divorce, and we're trying to understand this, what's the main thing to walk away with? What's the big idea here, Thomas? They woke me up in the middle of the night and asked me that. I think I would, you know, be rubbing my eyes and I would say something like, well, I guess marriage is good. Um, Stay married. Can I go back to bed now? (laughs) So this morning... I say, marriage is good. 
Stay married. Can we pray now? Except I have to go on. There are more things to say in regards to this. There are particulars here in this passage that make the surrounding topical difficult. You and I, we like tidy. We like neat. We like clear cut. We like black and white lines. And yet when dealing with sin and with dealing with people and when dealing with sinful people, it's rarely clean. It's rarely simple. Here we begin by reminding you of the surrounding context where Jesus is at and with his disciples here. These Pharisees, they come up with a test question. And you need to understand this question that is being brought forward to to Jesus is not a sincere question. This is a test question, a gotcha question. A, A question to see if we can't turn these things around on you, Jesus. It's used to entrap him. And they hope that he will either contradict the liberal teaching or the conservative teaching of their day. You need to recall that there has always been and will always be a conflict and a battle between liberal theology and conservative theology. There's always a battle of, are we going to stick with what God has said or are we going to try and deviate? And there's always been these two schools of thought. The conservative side of these rabbis and of the Pharisees of the day, they followed Rabbi Shammai, who taught that divorce was only permissible in the case of adultery. While the liberal side that followed Rabbi Hillel, they taught, on the other hand, well, just about for any reason, you can divorce your wife. If she gives you a bad look, if she ruins your dinner, eh, that's a good, good enough reason right there. You can do away. And so there is this back and forth and Jesus wants to turn their thinking back on them by asking, well, what did Moses command you? What did Moses say? They respond, well, Moses said we could write a certificate of divorce. And Jesus replies by essentially saying, I I think you're simply just looking for loopholes. You you are looking for ways out. But Moses wrote what he wrote, not because you are righteous, but because you are sinful. And all divorce, friends, is the result of sin. At least in one part of, on part of one, if not both, and likely both, but it's always the result of sin. And Jesus says, okay, well then let's rewind the tape. If that's what Moses said, let's go back to the very beginning. Prior to Moses, this is the, the first section on marriage. So he begins with Adam and Eve. And this is where we, I want to read to you again in 7 through 9, where he says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so back to my, my main point. If you woke me up in the middle of the night and said, Thomas, what's this all about? Marriage is good. Stay married. Stop looking for loopholes, looking for ways to get out. Why? Because the marriage was God's idea and it was very good. And the Bible opens up with a marriage in a garden. And I would argue to you that the, that the Bible shows us that it ends with marriage in a garden. And therefore, marriage is good. Stay married. And so the disciples then get this clarification on the matter when Jesus tells them privately, look, now if you divorce your spouse and then you just go on to marry another, it's the same essentially if you had just remained married to your first spouse and just went sleeping around. What is that called? It's, it's adultery. You're, you're committing adultery. You might feel right just because you've got yourself your divorce certificate in hand, 
But in the end of the day, what is it? It's, it's adultery to do this. You might feel better. You might think that from the vantage point of the culture, it's okay. But from the vantage point of heaven, it's wrong. This is adultery. And at this point, many of you might be upset saying, well, Thomas, what about, what about divorce in the case of adultery? Why, why is it that Jesus seems to hear, hold to this idea that divorce is never legal, never being okay? Well, I think there might be a couple things that are going on here in this passage. Uh, first, note that Mark has discipleship as a central theme in this text. It has been something that we've been trying to show over and over. Mark is presenting a radical call to discipleship. All of the Gospels here hit on this issue in one way or another, but Mark is always by far the punchiest. It's the shortest. It's, it's um, the one that is really picking, calling us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus the most. And this means our marriages, even our tough marriages, call us to forsake the worldly ways and to pick up our cross and follow Jesus. And even if if this means that our marriages, sometimes we're in tough and difficult marriages, it calls us to obey Christ by loving our spouse, even if they are a very, very difficult person. Ask my wife. She knows about this. Second, the piece that we know about this era is that divorce on the grounds of adultery was permissible. All schools held to this fact. Uh, the secular, the religious, the liberal school of Hillel, the conservative school of Shammai, Moses, the rabbis, the scribes, on and on and on. They all held that in the case of adultery, divorce, though not required, though not advised, though not good, was permissible. It was allowed. Why adultery and not burnt toast? Well, I think this has to do with the creation narrative, the very thing that Jesus is quoting here. He he is saying the two are becoming one flesh, and what is the sign of the one flesh union is the sexual relationship. And and where the very sign and what what is called the sign and seal of the covenant of marriage is being tromped on, well, then so the foundation of the marriage. And so you think, well, pastor, what about my unique circumstance? What about what I've been through? What about my past marriage? What about my past divorce? What about my past marriage and then divorce and then remarriage? Is this sin? Is this wrong? What, what can we say in these matters? Well, friend, you have to understand it. these things are so complicated and in many cases, this involves more details. It's not always easy to just say, well, in your case, for sure, it's this and that without having a one-on-one discussion with you. But you need to understand that here, there's being we're given broad brushstrokes that we must land on. And you have to also understand there's, there is disagreement between many faithful Christians on how these things get worked out. And so this morning is not geared to necessarily answer all those particular questions and scenarios, but to land on something that is very solid here. Jesus seems to line up with what has been the majority position that divorce was permissible, though not encouraged. And as the case of adultery, you can see in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, where in both places Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. 
Further in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, Paul speaks of a scenario there where a believing spouse is abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. And there the believing spouse is free to be separated. And therefore, there are biblical grounds for divorce. But here in Mark, here in Mark this morning, I want this thrust to land on you, church. That marriage is to be permanent. That's the intent. That's the design from the very beginning. As tough as it is, and it is tough, and as difficult as it is, and it is at times difficult, that it's to be permanent. Further, I want to encourage those of you who are in unhappy circumstances in your marriage. I want to encourage you to pray. I want to encourage you to not stop praying. It is easy. It is very easy to pray a couple prayers, to say, well, I don't think this person's really going to change. They've been this way for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I don't think they're really going to change. You've prayed a couple prayers and now you're just, don't stop praying. Do you believe that the unchanging God is not the God who can change those who are in need of change? He absolutely is. I'm living proof. And many of you are living proof that God does change us. So pray and don't stop praying. But also I want to encourage you share, share with others, your struggles. Share with others your triumphs in marriage and your struggles in marriage and ask for other brothers and sisters to help hold you up and walk arm in arm with you through this trial of marriage. And lastly, I would like to encourage you to remain as Jesus and Paul and others in the scriptures are encouraging us to remain in marriage. Don't seek an easy way out. This is not a call for you to remain necessarily in an abusive situation. So I want to say at the same time, if there's something alarming going on in your marriage where there is abuse, you are asked to reach out, to do something about it, not to remain as a doormat. Christians are never asked to be a doormat, to be abused, beat on, verbally beat up. This is never okay. And so you have the responsibility to reach out and call out for help. Reach out to the elders of this church. That's why we are here. But for those of you who are in a generalized, unhappy circumstance, statistically, I want to remind you that those marriages who've had seasons of health and doing well and then enter a season of unhappiness, that statistically, if you just hold on a while, just wait a while, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's four years, but statistically, there will be a season of joy and happiness to come later. So I encourage you to hold out hope even as you pray. Who knows what God may do in your marriage? Who knows what God may do with your spouse, with your loved one? Trust Christ through this trial. And so to answer the Pharisees test question, Jesus says, marriage is good. Stay married. And out of marriage comes fruit. Uh, One of the fruits of a good marriage, of a healthy marriage is children. Here the children teach us something about the character of a disciple. And so now we're turning to look at childlike faith in verses 13 through 16. Would you read those along with me here? And they were bringing children to him, that's to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Well, first, um, I, I think it may be important to note, just in case this is missed or misunderstood, that Jesus is not simply saying that by being chi- a child, you are automatically in the kingdom. That's not necessarily the statement he is making, as if all children are just in the kingdom by nature of being children. But I think that he's rather hitting on what he said before, that this is why he's very indignant at this point. This is why he's very upset. Uh, Rick Watts puts it this way. The, the, the disciples seem not to have heard any of Jesus' previous teaching on welcoming these little children. As in back in chapter 9. He says, little children were not considered old enough to understand or obey the law. Jesus also implies that entry into the kingdom depends not on a righteousness that comes from obeying the law, but on coming to him in a humble trust and a complete dependence. And it's that sense that children are to be emulated. It is this humble trust and complete dependence. What what the child has is what the disciples must also have. It is a childlike reception of the kingdom that Jesus emphasizes. So, just as the child needs full trust in their parent for provision, love and obedience, so it is with the disciples. A child, in effect, says, I don't really know any better. I just know that my parents love me and they provide for me and I will dwell happily in their kingdom, so to speak. So likewise, with you and I, we're turning to God just saying, I don't really know any better. I just know that he's going to provide for me and I know that if I trust him, I'm making it into his kingdom. It's as simple as that. And so the picture of this working out is clearly seen in the parallel between verses 14 and 15. Look in verse 14 there where you read Jesus saying, come to me. And then in verse 15, he says, receive the kingdom of God. So by the time that we work our way to the end of this book, you will see uh, that to come to Jesus, trusting in him and his sacrifice and in childlike trust um, is essentially to receive the kingdom. So you see how the threads of all these pieces are being pulled together in this middle portion of Mark. Chapter 9 called us to give up sinful things that would prohibit us from getting into the kingdom. Um, And then here, we're not only called to give up sinful things, we're also called to give up good things for the kingdom. You and I, we can clutch on to many good things, but the disciples must give those up for Christ in order to trust him like a child would with their parents. Recall last week, Jesus highlighted the fact that the disciples needed to embrace the least of these. That those whom seemed to be out of the clique, they were not in the posse of the 12 apostles. They were the ones that needed to be treated as insiders. That those who were with Jesus, great and small, were to also be embraced. We said that you and I were to do what Jesus did by embracing the child, by embracing the least. But here, we are saying not only to embrace the child, but you and I are to emulate the child with an open trust that knows that we admit Jesus knows better than we do. And so we turn to him. And now we're turning to our third and final point where we will see the man who has everything is missing something. 
And therefore, in the end, I will argue, he ends up with nothing. The man who has everything is missing something. And therefore, in the end, he will end up with nothing. Look here as we turn to treasuring the true treasure in verse 17. Now, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to them, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The idea here of Jesus responding to the good seems to be that he is saying this man's whole category of good needs to be flipped on its head. Those who seem to be good may not be good in the heart at all. This is bound up with the idea of karma. This idea, this guy believes he's really, really good. The fact that he was like Job's friends who seemed to assume my obedience warrants my wealth and my future heaven. Do you catch that? My obedience to the law warrants my wealth and my future heaven. They thought if a person was doing really, really well and is financially well off, that somehow God was rewarding them for their good behavior. And yet, you and I, we see over and over that Jesus, he sides with the marginalized. He, he sides with the poor, with the outcast. That's not to say that the wealthy are in sin, by no means. It's just to call our attention to the fact that their wealth may be a stumbling block to the gospel. And it definitely is an indicator that they are spiritually not doing well if their hope then is in their wealth. So imagine that you're riding in a car and your friend is driving behind the wheel and he says, hey, I know we've got a full tank of gas because I looked at the tachometer and it said that we're going above a thousand RPM. And you'd scratch your head and you'd say, I don't care if we're going 4,000 RPM. That's not how you determine if you have a full tank of gas. You're looking at the wrong indicator. You need to look at the fuel gauge, friend. That's where you see if you have a full tank or not. Well, here, likewise, this man needs to reorient himself to the correct indicator of his status. Not only is it not based on his wealth, but it's not based on his performance either. Notice this man's wealth was not just accumulated in wicked ways like perhaps a tax collector would be. This man was a good man. He didn't defraud people. He didn't tromp on people. He didn't stomp on the backs of the poor to get his money. He must have been a shrewd, wise man with his money. Perhaps he was working hard and diligently and honestly built up a big business, a big company. Uh, Maybe he was slowly, over time, squirreling away his money and doing really, really well. And, and, And so, what's the issue here? Notice Jesus didn't think that the wealth itself was the issue. The issue is a heart that trusts in wealth rather than in God. Here, as if 
the man says, Jesus, um, you, 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 you know, I, I think I'm doing okay. And Jesus says, really? Well, let's just go down the list. Have you murdered anyone to get your wealth? Have you murdered someone? Man goes, no, no way. That, no, check. You can check that box. Jesus says, oh, okay, well, what about stealing? Did you get some of your wealth by stealing? No, honestly, I didn't. Check that box. Okay, how about this? Lying? Did you lie? Did you cheat? Have you been honoring your parents? Man goes, ha, I'm doing pretty well. Check, check, check. And then Jesus seems to, to get at the fact that they overlooked the first commandment. It's almost as if Jesus here at this point says, you know what? Let's go to the beginning. Let's go to the first commandment. Do you have any other gods that come before the God? And the man looks and goes, huh, me? No, I got my priorities straight. Thank you. Jesus says, prove it. Prove it. Get rid of your treasure. Get rid of your money. Sell all you have. Give to the poor. And then suddenly we realize this man who was so righteous and so great, he doesn't even make it past the first commandment. And he has another God whom he loves more than the true God. He loves his bank account more than he loves Jesus. He loves his house. He loves his possessions. He loves all these things more than Jesus. Martin Luther is famous for saying that there are three salvations that must occur. There are three conversions, rather. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and lastly, the conversion of the purse, the conversion of the wallet. This man was not fully converted. And therefore, he went away grieved and sorrowful. Church, oh, that he would have said, you know what? I will give it all up today. I'm not going to sell my possessions. I am giving them and joining you, Jesus, because you are worth it. Oh, that he would have given it all up. The fact that he went away sad shows us he was really married to his money. It gave him status. It gave him security. It gave him comfort. It gave him power. I say that wherever you are looking for security, status, pleasure, comfort, and power that are not in him, it has become your functional God. It has become what you treasure. And that means whatever it is, you ought to sever yourself from that thing. Get rid of it. If it's extra money, then do it. If it's your job, friend, then do it. If it's your hobbies, then do it. All good things can become a God to us and ensnare us and replace Christ in our lives. And so we give those things up. To get at the main idea of this section, let me quote from another passage where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. He, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible. It won't happen. What can be done about this? What can we do about this situation? We keep reading. Look at verse 24 here. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to them, said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. 
For all things are possible with God. We'll pause there. After saying the disciples must be like a child, this is interesting. He just got done saying, you must be like the children. Become like a child in your faith. Do you see what he called them here in verse 24? He says, children, which is tipping our hat to even at this point, the disciples are being considered those who are like the child who will trust in Christ above other things. And, and, and here it's, it's very difficult to enter the kingdom. Very, very difficult. How difficult? Well, in the case of a rich person, it would be easier for a large mammal to go through a sewing needle. Uh, it, it would be like, um, maybe in our community, we could put it this way. It would be like saying, it will be easier for a black bear to go through one of the slots in a cyclone fence to get on the other side to eat the vegetables in your garden. It will be easier for the bear to do that than it will be for a rich man to go to heaven. To which we say, that's impossible. It's not happening. And that's the point. It can't happen. And to be honest, I'm not sure there would be one of us here, maybe a few, who would fall in this category of not being rich. If we did a survey here, I think there'd be very, very few here who would actually fall into the category of poor. Why do I say that? Well, you may look in the community and you may look and say, ah, compared to these people, I am not very well off. I, you know, I I have very, very little compared to someone just down my own street. But question for you, do you worry about where your next meal will be? Do you, do you ever worry? uh, What am I going to eat tonight? What am I going to eat today? Is it very likely that tonight that when you have your dinner, you'll likely have meat on the table with your meal? then globally at this moment, you are considered rich. And let me say historically at this point in time, you are considered very, very rich. Um, Do you have a phone in your pocket? Do Do you have a phone that would give you access to more information than King Solomon would have ever dreamed of? Than more than the richest people in the entire world, the Rockefellers could have ever dreamed about. You have instant access to a, 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 an amazing amount, an overwhelming amount of information. If you have a phone in your pocket that lets you do that, then friend, you're not just rich. You're filthy rich. And here Jesus says, it's difficult to get into the kingdom of heaven to which you and I should respond at this point. If that's the case, who here can be saved then? Who can be saved? No one. This guy's so good. He shows up to Jesus. He's done all, he's checked all the boxes and he's out and we're richer than this man here in the text. We're all out. We're all toast, except we just read who are in. We just read it. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child shall not enter it. So to come with a faith and a trust To believe as a child saying, I will leave everything, Jesus, to follow you. I trust you to provide for me, to care for me. If I injure myself in a great fall like a child, I know that you will save me. And mankind, we have. We've injured ourselves in the fall. And in childlike faith, we call out to our Heavenly Father, I know you can save me. I know you can save me. That's the response. 
And so then I ask, well, how does this land on us? How does this get applied in our life? Well, I think one way might to, to, to say, well, I, you could say, I, I know I budgeted these funds to pay my PGE bill, but, but I think I'm just going to take my PGE bill funds and use them to, to give funds to the church or to someone in need in the church. I, I don't think that that would be a proper response. I don't think that that is exactly what Jesus would be asking of us. I think that would be foolish. But let me say, I think the one point of application might for, be for us to actually budget, to actually set aside money every month, every week, or however you're receiving your money, to actually set aside money for tithe or for those need here in our body in advance. Friends, I recognize I'm rather lazy. If, if I don't do this, do you know where my money will go? I don't even know where it goes. I walk over to the store. I walk out with stuff I did not intend to buy. I get on the Amazon shopping and things end up in my cart that are just, well, extravagante. They're really not necessary items. But if I budget and I plan in advance, here is the money I'm setting aside first. It's part of me giving up my, my riches, getting rid of the excess things so that I don't need to accumulate more and more. I think this is one of the primary reasons that Christians ought to make as much money as possible is because I believe that if we can make as much money as possible, we can give away as much money as possible to use it for kingdom purposes, to give it away to others here in the midst in our needs. And there are needs we, we see in the book of Acts several times. We see men and women in the book of Acts who are well-to-do, who are wealthy and yet are in the kingdom. They're not out of the kingdom for the wealth. They're in the kingdom for their wealth because they're leveraging their wealth for kingdom purposes. And I think there's an opportunity for us also to leverage our funds for kingdom work. And I praise God that many here have that kind of heart. That when there's a need in the body, you show up with an anonymous funds and to help. Uh, th- this is all part of showing that Christians are living with different motivations. And we're living for a different kingdom that is not being just built up here on earth. And friends, the promise here is that giving up now is not in vain. Don't think for a minute, if you're giving up now just to live in poverty, just to fade away into nothingness. That's not how it is. If we give up the American dream now, what are we gaining? What do we get when we give up? A lot. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Catch this. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Yes. And in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. The Gospel Transformation Bible adds right here, it says, uh, once again, Jesus turns upside down the natural assumptions of the disciples about how the kingdom works because it is childlike trust and not outward blessings such as wealth that qualifies one for the kingdom. The entrance into God's favor is effectively inverted from what is naturally expected. And isn't that the question that encircles around this whole section? How does one enter the kingdom? How does one enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's through childlike faith in Christ, not through our good deeds, 
Not by checking all the Ten Commandments and not by your possessions, not by hoarding a mass now. What will wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you come to the cross, clutching onto your stuff, you won't come to the cross. To receive the kingdom means you don't buy it. You can't do a good enough good to earn it. It is received and friends, it's received by grace. It's a gift of God to you. Well, I opened up this morning by telling you about a particular marriage. I want to close our time by telling you about a particular rich man. Now I close here by telling you this man was very, very rich. He was, by all accounts, filthy rich. This man had everything. This man had good relationships filled with perfect love. He had a kingdom he owned. It was filled with beings that praise him and praise him and praise him. He had fame. He had comfort. He had love. He had provision. He had power. He had security. It was a perfect picture of being rich, wealthy, and having everything he wanted and then some. But this rich man, this rich man, he looked upon someone he loved. And sadly, this person that he was in love with was in great debt. It was just a matter of time before this person would end up in debtor's prison, never to walk out again. And in great, great love, this rich man, this wealthy man saw in desperation, the one in debt and said, I will pay their debt, but it will exhaust all my resources. It will bring me great discomfort. It will leave me high and dry. It will ultimately mean I'm going to lose not just my bank account, but it will bring me on the brink of total destruction. Do you recognize this rich man? Paul says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. This man is so very, very different from the rich man that we see in this passage. Friends, if you see how this rich man came to Jesus, he saw Jesus and he comes running and then he gets down on his knees in front of Jesus saying, what must I do? And when Jesus says, you have to love me more than everything else, this man gets up And walks away from Jesus. Don't ever walk away from Jesus. Don't ever run to him. But just to get up and walk away. And go clutching onto your stuff. If you have not received him. Speak with someone here today. Receive him like the disciples who said we've given up everything Jesus to follow you. In this room, this room is filled with people who have committed their funds, who've committed their resources, who've committed their lives to Jesus. And if you have yet to do that this morning, seek out someone here while there's still time to do that. They would love to speak with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we need the riches and the richness of your mercy. Father, far too often, 
The devil has told us that you are not bringing us treasures, that you are not truly giving us a gift and that we must get it and snatch it while we can now. Father, that is a lie. Help us to see it for what it is, a lie. Help us to believe the truth that we could give up everything now joyfully. If right now we could, we'd give it all up just to have you. We pray that we will indeed do this. We ask by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.